Hey, uh, I love that VBS recap video. I can't believe our directors and our volunteers pulled that off. Such creativity and hard work and so grateful. Uh, I heard we had about uh, 600 uh, kids uh, registered or receiving a kit. And so uh, we're just so grateful for that. I love uh, so many of the kids who posted uh, their pictures or videos. I love that last scene that uh, Junyoung, uh, he literally, his parents literally made him run the 5K. And at the end, <laughs> he was exhausted, but it's so joyful, uh, crying with joy. And uh, what a great reminder that we need to run the race with endurance. Thank you so much, KK uh, staff, for all of that. I don't know about you, but I watched Hamilton this weekend. Okay, now, I didn't know a lot about it. I heard it was uh, a musical about the founding fathers rapping. And that seemed so non-attractive. I had no idea why it was so popular, but I watched it this weekend with my family, and let me be honest with you, I loved it. It was so good. I watched it again. You know, there are a lot of threads that went through Hamilton, but one of the threads was this, that extraordinary people with extraordinary gifts and talents can do extraordinary things in these extraordinary moments of history, right? Hamilton, brilliant as he started King College, he wanted to finish in two years. Washington, so just strong and such a great leader. Uh, Jefferson, so savvy politically. Even Aaron Burr, um, you know, he was ambitious. But, but he still had a great mind to him. They illustrate that uh, when this country started, when the United States started, that it took uh, extraordinary people with extraordinary gifts uh, doing extraordinary things at extraordinary times. You know, we're going through the book of Mark, and you and I would suspect that uh, something so much bigger, lasting than uh, the country of the United States of America, that at its beginning, in its uh, birthing time, that we will be that the that the Christian movement will have extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. And our passage for today, if you have your Bibles, will be in Mark chapter three, starting verse seven. And I think what we're going to discover is a little bit surprising. We begin with verses 7 and 8 with a crowd. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. Verse 8, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And then later on, verse 20, then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. Jesus had attracted a large crowd pressing against him. But in verse 13, Jesus uh, narrows the crowd to a small group. 
And it is this small group that becomes uh, the figurative founding fathers of the Christian faith. It wasn't just these 12. There were others involved, but uh, this is the first time he kind of mentions them formally, or at least a group formally. It says in verse 13, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to, to cast out demons. And in verse 16, we're given the names of the 12 apostles. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave uh, the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And what we would suspect is if we uh, look deep into the history and the actions of these uh, founding fathers of the Christian faith, that we would find extraordinary people. And I, what I'm going to do today is to tell you a little bit about each person, and I think we will be surprised. Um, just as a way of a visualization, I put up a chair for each of the apostle, the first one is Simon. He is always listed first. He is the undisputedly uh, the leader of, uh, of the apostles, and later on he becomes the leader of the church. He is a natural-born leader, whether it be in fishing or in apostleship or in churching. And his crowning moment is when Jesus asks, well, who do the people say I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter replies, you are the son of God. And Jesus says, I also say to you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And by the way, uh, his legal name is Simon. Peter is his nickname. And Peter means rock. What a cool nickname, right? You're going around, hi, Simon, hi, Simon. Hey, you're the rock. What stands out about Peter is that he was just a, a passionate person. He is not a thinker. He's a feeler. He feels and does and says, and then he thinks about, what did I just say and do? It has this upside and downside. Jesus at one time said he must suffer at the hands of the religious elite. And what, this is what Peter does. He doesn't like what Jesus is saying. So he sets Jesus aside and he, it says he rebuked Jesus. Jesus said, you're going to uh, abandon me. And Peter said, even if all these other fools abandon you, I will not. Even if I have to give my life for you. And you and I know what? that Peter eventually denies Jesus three times, and he goes and weeps bitterly. I don't recall an instance where the, uh, any of the other apostles weep bitterly, but the passionate, impulsive Peter does. You know, he becomes um, the speaker uh, during Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes out, and when the religious uh, leaders say that you cannot preach Jesus Christ. It is Peter who rises up and says, we will not obey men, we will obey God. 
And you and I would think that Peter, by the time that Jesus resurrected and ascended, that he would have matured as a person, calmed down. But we know that he still remains rough at the edges. Though he was the one that God used to welcome Gentiles into the church later on, we find out that he displays racist tendencies by not wanting to sit and eat with the Gentiles. And Paul had to rebuke him. You know, this is what's fascinating to me is when if you're trying to start a movement, you would take someone really brilliant like a Hamilton, a steady leader like Washington, or, or a political uh, savvy person like a uh, Jefferson. But God chose a fisherman, uneducated, impulsive, unstable. Those who study Greek who are scholars, will say, to you, uh, will say that if you read First and Second Peter, the, the letters that Peter wrote, it sounds like it was written by someone who doesn't have formal education. That was Peter. Then we have a, a pair of brothers, James and John. James is the older. Uh, John is the younger and probably the youngest of all the disciples. Um, they have an interesting nickname, and uh, their nickname is uh, Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And in Hebrew, it, it can mean the loud ones or the hot-tempered ones, you know, like the mom had these two boys, and they're just running around, uh, screaming, you know, breaking things, and Jesus gets to know them, and you, you guys are sons of of thunder, And this is an example of what their temperament must have been like. In Luke chapter 9, they go through Samaria and they stop at a village. If you recall, Samaria was an area where it's filled, populated with half-breeds, mixed-race people. And the pure-breaded Jews really looked down upon the mixed-race Samaritans. They stop by a village. And, and, and think about it. Jesus is training these uh, disciples to become evangelists. Apostles mean ones who are sent out, missionaries. And they stopped by a village, and the reaction from the villagers at that time wasn't as positive. And so this is what James and John do. They come to Jesus, and in chap Luke chapter 9, verse 54, I don't know if you remember this, but they come to Jesus and ask, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You know, they didn't have the power to do so. What they're saying is, Lord, we think you should pour fire upon these people, these half-breeds, because they disrespected us. Good grief, There's, they're being trained to be missionaries. And this is the attitude they had. Later on in the last week of Jesus' life, uh, the mom of the sons of thunder and I kind of think about it, I, you know, it didn't occur to me until recently, but it, it must have been quite a mom to raise sons of thunders, to rein them in, a helicopter dragon tiger mom, I was imagining. It's the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus is talking about how, he, you know, he's going to suffer. Mom comes in, sets Jesus aside. Um, Jesus? Um, when you arrive at where, you're, where you need to arrive, 
can you make my sons to sit at the right and the left of your position of authority? That's a lot of pressure. That's the kind of home and temperament James grew up with. Someone who is courageous and confrontational. He's the kind of person that you want with you in a fight. Appropriately, when the early church started and Herod, the king, wanted to persecute and stop this movement from uh, taking steam, uh, they captured the leader of the church at that time was James, and he became the first martyr. The younger brother, John, he also had that same name, Son of Thunder, but we think that he had a tender side to him, an affectionate side to him. Uh, Perhaps because he was the youngest, and in fact, he lived the longest of all of the apostles. But this is what I mean when I say that he was probably an affectionate person. You know, there are four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John. This John wrote that John. He also wrote first, second, third John. It is interesting how John writes in that when he writes of the apostles and when he has to mention himself... He doesn't use the pronoun, the first person pronoun, I or me or uh, anything like that. He used the third person, uh, the, the disciple. But it is fascinating how he talks about himself, the disciple. John 13, 23, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. John 19, 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. John 22, so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. You get the point. It's interesting how when John talks about himself and he recalls what happened, he can't help but to be reminded that I'm loved by Jesus. If you read through the Gospel of John, if you read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, it's evident that he was an affectionate, loving individual. And in fact, uh, in the five books of the New Testament he writes, um, including Revelation, he uses uh, the form of the word love uh, 80 times. And perhaps it was because of his affection and his care that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looks at his mother, a widow, knowing that she's going to lose her firstborn son. She turns to John, behold your mother, behold your son. And we're told that from that day on, John took care of the mother of Jesus. The last uh, of this four group is Andrew. Andrew is Simon's brother, and, and John and James are brothers too. And S- Simon becomes the leader of the apostles, but it is Andrew who met Jesus first, and Andrew brought his brother to Jesus. But I want you to notice what happens here. John chapter 1, verse 42, when Andrew brings his brother Simon to Jesus, Jesus looked at Simon and said, you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas. 
which is translated Peter. So this is what happens. Simon, uh, Andrew brings Simon, and Jesus says, you, you, you shall be called the rock. John and James comes, you're sons of thunder. Isn't that cool? It's like WWE, right? The rock on the one corner and the sons of thunder on the other corner. And Andrew's nickname? Andrew. Right? How disappointing is that? You know, it's interesting how, um, though he was one of the first ones to have encountered Jesus, he is consistently overshadowed by the other three. In fact, Jesus not only has multitudes of disciples or crowd, uh, but he has his 12. But among the 12, he, he forms an inner core, inner circle. That when the space is too small or revelation has to be deeper, like in Mount Trans, uh, Transfiguration or Gethsemane, he takes a smaller group called the inner circle with him. And you know who is in the inner circle consistently? Simon, James, and John. And not Andrew. Once in a great while, he gets invited to the inner circle, but mostly not. You know, it, it's fascinating uh, that in this four group, three get a lot of spotlights, a lot of platform time, a lot of recognition. But Andrew is in the back serving, doing what he needs to do. John MacArthur says this about Andrew. Andrew was that rare person who is willing to take second place, who is perfectly content to be in support of the more noticeable and acclaimed ministry of others. If that is where God wants him to be, he does not mind being hidden. So long as the Lord's work is done, here's the person that all leaders depend on and who are the backbone of every ministry that cause of Christ is greatly dependent on the self-forgetting souls who are satisfied to occupy a small sphere in an obscure place free from self-seeking ambition. The church needs more Andrews. Uh, by the way, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but I chose a leather chair to represent Andrew. Because um, I think when we get to heaven, we'll find out that Andrew may have received greater rewards for what he has meant to the kingdom than even the ones that we know about more. That's the first four. The scripture, oftentimes, are groups of these disciples into fours. And the second group begins with Philip. In John chapter 1, verse 43, Jesus calls Philip to follow me. And Philip goes and finds his friend, and he tells his friend, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You know, it's interesting because the first four, the, the more well-known apostles, they were all blue-collar fishermen. But it is this group, I believe, that has a little bit more of intellectual firepower. And it is Philip who said, oh, Jesus, he's the one the Old Testament speaks of as if he had book knowledge, a book smart. 
but as Jesus interacts with Philip on one occasion, he tests Philip, hey, there's a crowd, um, how are we going to feed them? And Philip says, I don't, we don't have enough money, forgetting that Jesus could multiply bread. And another time, Jesus talks about how, you know, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And Philip insists, but show us the Father, not really understanding. The kind of person Philip was this. He, he read, he knew God's truth intellectually, but, but there was something missing in his heart. That it was Bible knowledge, but not heart knowledge. Philip brings his friend Bartholomew or Nathaniel to Jesus. And in the beginning, when he hears about Jesus, he says, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth as showing his snobby side? But when Jesus tells Nathaniel um, what he knows about Nathaniel as if he's communicating his omniscience, the first person who calls Jesus uh, among the apostles, the first apostle that uh, says of Jesus, you are the son of God, is not Simon Peter, but is Nathaniel. You are the son of God. He's a perceptive apostle. The seventh of the apostle is Matthew. He was an accountant. He did finance. We know that he was a tax collector, uh, despised by the Jews because uh, of so many different reasons. And the, 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 the class of tax collectors were so despised by the religious Jewish culture that they were not allowed to go into the temple. What is interesting about Matthew is this. He you know, when he uh, started following Jesus, he calls all of his tax collector friends sinners. And, and a couple of weeks ago, I t said that perhaps they were prostitutes. And they have a dinner with Jesus. It causes a, a minor controversy, a scandal with the religious community. I, I think that like some of the people in this room, Matthew had a Jesus moment. His life turned around. And, and as he continued to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ, he never quite forgot his past. And in fact, the list of 12 apostles is, uh, happens four times in the Bible. But it is only in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, which Matthew himself wrote, that he says uh, that Matthew, the tax collector, as if he had to constantly remind himself, I used to be that, that person. But now this is me. But I'm never going to forget the person I used to be because Jesus brought me out of that. You know, some six years ago, I, I preached a very similar sermon as we were going through the Gospel of Mark. And I, I remember that going through all this, and we, of course we had a bigger crowd, and afterwards, um, one guy came up to me and said, it's like first time, first time at church, at Living Hope, and, and first time at church in a long time, I think. Man, I, I can relate to that guy that you were talking about. I found out later on that he had spent time in jail, and he just came out. 
friend brought him to church. The eighth person, before I flip the paper over, I just want to just take a pause, a moment to say this is a chair, blue. And I imagine that if this apostle had lived today, that he would have gone to UCLA and studied computer engineering. And, and it's Thomas. And the reason I think that is because he, he, he was a doubting Thomas. That he didn't just kind of believe because people said to believe, or he was just following the crowd. I, I think he had like a science mind. That he was honest and that if he believed it to be truth, then he would believe it. Uh, if you recall, Jesus dies and resurrects again. He appeal, uh, appears to the ten. Jesus, Judas is gone. And, and Thomas comes and the ten said, we've seen the risen Lord Jesus. And Thomas says, no, I'm not going to believe until I see him and and." See the scars. And Jesus appears to Thomas. And by the way, I think this is such a, a great insight for us. Because I believe this, that the Lord will appear and show himself to us if we're honest about our search for him. Search for truth. And when Thomas was able to see the scars on his side and his hand. And, and sometimes people question whether the divinity of Jesus is something that the church kind of made up later, later on. But in one of the most precise and significant confessions, Jesus, uh, Thomas says of Jesus, my Lord and my God, my curious and my theos. The one whom I bow down to and my God. There is no uh, ambiguous way to interpret that than to conclude that Thomas believed that Jesus was Theos, God. An engineer turned to Christ. We get to our final group, and, and I feel bad because most of these people we rarely ever talk about. Because we know so little about them. Um, and I feel bad because I chose a chair from our Kingdom Kids Junior room. And it's not because I ran out of chairs, but it's because uh, this James, uh, the scripture nicknames him James the Lesser. Or James the Small. The Small James. <laughs> as opposed to the big James. And some people think it was because he was small. And that's all we really know about him. So if we get to heaven, we see a, a James and he's really small. Hey, are you by any chance? I know nothing else about you. But are you that guy who can sit on a KKJ chair? Um, and then we have Thaddeus. He has a cool name. He could be an Avengers character. But we really don't know anything about him, nondescript. And then we have Simon, not Peter, but Simon the Zealot. Zealots are, uh, if you recall, the violent ones. 
They're the ones who opposed the Romans and wanted to oppose them by force. Uh, they started a violent revolution, and the Romans got so fed up with the zealots that a few decades after uh, the ascension of Jesus, that the Romans came down and obliterated Jerusalem, tore the wall down, tore the temple down, and Israel didn't ex exist for uh, 2,000 years or so because of the zealots. I would have been afraid of Simon the Zealot. I, I wouldn't want to get him mad. You know, if you think about all of these people, uh, let me point out a few things. First of all, every one of these people lacked character. You know, it, it's obvious that they didn't have the, the uber extraordinary gifts and talents like a Hamilton, Washington, and Jefferson. But you would think that if they're starting a religious, spiritual movement, at least they would have faith or character. But every single person has a character flaw. They're rough at the edges. They have a history. Uh, they're, they're arrogant. They're racist. And, and sometimes, even after they become a Jesus followers. The other thing that we kind of notice about this team is that it's not a dream team at all. You would think that if you're assembling a team that you would, um, you would form it in a way that if there are any weaknesses that it would be compensated by other strengths. But that's not the case at all. There's, uh, there's not a Bible scholar in the room at all. Why, why do we need four fishermen? We don't need four fishermen. Who are the influencers who are the savvy politicians? I, I'm not quite getting why God, Jesus formed the team the way that he did. If he wanted proper representation, where are the upper class? You know, um, one of the things that we kind of notice about the founding fathers is this, that they're, they're a group of misfits. That when confronted with the idea that, you're, you, that God's going to use you to, to change the world, I, I'm pretty sure that they would have looked at themselves and said, I'm, I, we're not qualified. You know, what's interesting is this, this week, I, uh, like a lot of other weeks, I, I'm talking to different groups of people, and one of the words that I've heard a lot this week is I'm discouraged. It's discouraging. Uh, discouraging this week in particular because a lot of people in California thought that we were going a positive direction, but finding out we're not. And, and they're tired and they, like all the effort, all the, the waiting, all the locking down and now what? I don't have the answers. I don't know what to do, and they're discouraged. Why did Jesus choose this group? And I'm just going to say that it's not because they were qualified. But there is one thing that binds each one of these. And this is what qualifies them. In verse 13, And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. 
Okay. The only thing that the apostles had in common was this, that Jesus desired to call them. That's it. It's not their qualifications because they're not qualified. And Jesus did not call the qualified, but he qualifies those whom he called. And listen carefully. Sometimes God calls you to be a leader in the church. Sometimes God calls you to be a, a staff on, uh, on Kingdom Kids or Catapult. Sometimes God calls you to be a wife or a mother or a husband. Or a God. Sometimes God calls you into your profession um, and, and to be a salt and light in what you do. And if someone were to ask you, do you feel like you are qualified to be salt and light by what you know, what you do, by your history, and by your character? And, and to be honest, the answer is no, you're not qualified. But I want you to know that God's not calling the qualified, but he is qualifying those whom he desired to call. So if God put you somewhere, if God connected you to a relationship, I, I want you to know that God called you to that because he desired it and he will qualify you by saying, come spend time with me. Let me refine you. By the way, if, uh, I'm going to ask the band to come up and if those of you who are perceptive will realize there's a red chair here. Um, I want you to notice that in the list of the apostles, it always begins with Peter, and it always ends with Judas. Judas always bookends the apostles. We know a lot about him uh, because he is, a, uh, he is the one who betrayed Jesus. But I want you to know this, that during the time he was with them, it, um, it wasn't as if he was actively opposing Jesus. He was, we know, um, smart. He took care of the books. Go ahead. Um, we know also that um, there was a time when he criticized Mary for spending a lot of money on worship, but we find out that he used to tick a little bit off the top for himself. We also know that when it came time, he sold Jesus out to the religious authorities for 30 pieces of silver, and we tend to think, God, that was terrible. But this is what I want you to know. And I don't think Judas meant for Jesus to die. In fact, when he began to see that happening, he felt immense remorse. And it's, it's, it says in uh, Matthew chapter 27, verse 3 and 4, Judas felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He felt such remorse. He did everything that he could to make things right again. Now, I'm going to say this. And, and, and theologically, I know there's a, um, because you know, he's called the son of perdition, God is uh, sovereign and, and, and things like that. But just humanly speaking, experientially speaking, I want you to know this that I do not believe that Judas's sin was any more unforgivable than Peter's sin. Peter betrayed, uh, uh, abandoned his friend in that time of need three times, right? 
but Peter was Jesus' like best friend. Judas sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, but not knowing that that was going to lead to his death. And when he realized that, he did everything that he could to stop it, but he couldn't. And he was so anguished, he went and hung himself, we're told. What is it, though, that distinguishes Judas from the 11? And there is only one thing, only one thing that distinguishes Judas from the 11 apostles. The one thing that caused him to be disqualified completely, and it is this. Judas did not wait to be forgiven. He thought he was righteous. He thought he was good. But he found out that he wasn't. And he, he, he looked at his sin, his mistake, what he did that caused terrible damage. And he just, he couldn't handle the burden of guilt. And his only solution is to kill himself. He never waited for the forgiveness of Jesus. What was the only difference between Judas and the others? It's not that he was any less qualified. It's not that he sinned a greater sin. He just did not realize, know, accept that he, even his sin could be forgiven. And so my encouragement to all of us is that you and I, we are forgiven. We have forgiveness by the blood of Jesus, not on the basis of our righteousness. I went a little too long, I'm sorry. Um, you know, and, and what Jesus does is he reminds us of that, that we are forgiven not by our righteousness, but the righteousness that comes from Jesus. And, you know, what he does is that when Jesus eventually is betrayed, abandoned, that he, he has supper with his disciples. And I think my element is, my table is somewhere. Okay, I'm going to have my assistant give me. Thank you. And for those of you who are home, if you can prepare your elements. And, and because we're so still wrapped up in this idea that I have to be good enough, I have to perform well enough, I have to be qualified enough, I have to not make any mistakes, and, and some of us believe that our sins are unforgivable. And I'm here to say even Judas' sin could have been forgiven if he had waited, if he had trusted, if he had known. And so today I... I I sit with all of you and Jesus for 2,000 years has said that do this, do this so that you would remember, so that you won't forget. Uh, if you are here and you got one of these um, things, uh, would you open up the cellophane, the plastic? And it's a wafer and Jesus passes the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. Let's partake together. And if you could prepare the juice. And he says to us, this is my blood shed for you. Let's partake together. 
So Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that it's not on the basis of our faith, our character, our works, but only, only on the basis of what you've done on the cross. We thank you once again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.